0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the War on Palestine podcast. This is episode eight, recorded and published on November 26, 2023. I am one of the co-hosts, Noura Erika, joined by Ziyad Rish and Bassam Haddad. We continue to offer this podcast as a digest of news that's happening on the ground, recognizing that for so many activist, scholars, analysts, and people who care about what's going on, these events in the past few weeks and past few days have been overwhelming in terms of keeping track but especially the emotional tool they have taken upon us. We want to offer this resource to consolidate and keep track of several developments on multiple fronts, including on the ground in Gaza and across Palestine, at the United Nations and the diplomatic front, in the geostrategic sense, across grassroots activism and the backlash to it across multiple geographies, as well as the US media landscape.
1: While the impetus for this program was the dramatic escalation of Israel's violence in the Gaza Strip, we want to emphasize, as we have individually done so elsewhere, that Israel's campaign against the Gaza Strip is not Gaza-specific, it is Palestine-specific. In the end, what is happening in the Gaza Strip today is an intensification of the decades of settler colonialism and apartheid practices of the Israeli state, even if by many accounts one of its most violent iterations ever. For today's episode... We've decided to change up the format to better take stock of what we know about the various dynamics that constitute this current moment. Ziad, As many of our
2: listeners know, the recent escalation of the Israeli war on Palestinians and on the Gaza Strip in particular took place after October 7, 2023. It was then that the military wing of the Palestinian organization Hamas conducted an operation in which it broke through the Gaza-Israel separation barrier by land, air, and sea under a barrage of rockets. Hamas subsequently seized control of the Erez crossing, raided and took control of several Israeli military and intelligence bases, and raided and took control of several Israeli towns. While Hamas planned and carried out this operation, it appears increasingly likely that members of other Palestinian organizations, including Islamic Jihad, as well as unaffiliated persons, also crossed into Israel following the breach of the perimeter. Some estimates put the number of Israeli communities infiltrated at 22. Israeli police and military responded to the attack And it took several days and apparently various forms of Israeli military engagement before all Palestinians who broke the perimeter returned to Gaza were captured by Israeli forces or were killed as part of the response. In the wake of this operation and its aftermath, the Israeli death toll of October 7th stands at around 1,200 Israelis, about a third of which are active military and police and the remainder civilians. At the time, an estimated 243 Israelis and foreign nationals were taken back into Gaza as prisoners of war or hostages, depending on if their status was military personnel or civilians. Noura.
0: Observers, analysts, and legal experts have continued to describe the various violations of the laws of war and international law in Israel's onslaught against the besieged population in Gaza. These include, at the very basic level, war crimes, primary of which is the inability to distinguish, or the failure, I should say, to distinguish between civilians and combatants as Israel has engaged in indiscriminate carpet bombing across Palestinian communities, neighborhoods, uh, and, and, and life. These have included a deliberate attack on medical infrastructure that is meant to, by many accounts, to depopulate Northern Gaza, or to achieve ethnic cleansing above the line of Wadi Ghaz, to move Palestinians to the south. We know now that at least one third of 1.2 million Palestinians have been forcibly removed to the south. The other 800,000 that remained have remained are, are there without adequate um, humanitarian things that serve life, including uh, medicine, food, food, uh, basic food, as well as access to hygienic water. Other claims include genocide, the most fervent of those claims. By many accounts, they, it has been described as an unfolding genocide or a threat of genocide. What is not contested is that there, there is an incitement to genocide, and we have seen that there are Two uh, elements of genocide that have also been met for the most part, these are the specific intent to destroy a people in whole whole or in part based on their ethnic, religious, racial uh, grounds, as well as the specific underlying acts to achieve that what israel has insisted upon is that all of this is necessary to achieve self-defense but in this instance they have equated their self-defense to the removal of all palestinians so it is not that they are denying that they are attacking palestinians in mass it is not that they are denying that there are in their words, no Palestinian civilians, that they are all human animals, that the objective of their attack is destruction, not accuracy. It is that they are insisting that these attacks are justified and therefore can be precedent when Israel says it needs to do so in order to achieve its national security. No. That this is a similar line of how Israel has described most of its offensive attacks against Palestinians while framing it as defensive force. It also echoes the U.S. administration's provision of aid to Israel, which is always conditioned on its use for defensive purposes, which is why Israel is uh, acting in self-defense, even as it is abrogating these basic laws meant to regulate warfare, to protect civilian lives, to protect civilian infrastructure, and yet we continue to receive the spin that is defensive force. It is one of the reasons that the right to self-defense is actually placed within the purview of the UN Security Council, because if left to the discretion of individual states, every state would describe any of its attacks, any of its use of force, as defensive in nature, as necessary to achieve its national interest, and precisely why none of it is acceptable without external oversight. In this case, as has been in the past with Israel, that does not exist. Onwards to the rest of the humanitarian scene. We know that the total siege of Gaza continues. There has been no electricity since October 11th that Gaza has effectively been plunged into uh, darkness. No fuel has been allowed to enter now for more than five weeks. Eight trucks are only allowed since October 21. And even since this negotiation um, and and the exchange of prisoners, a fraction of the trucks that have been negotiated have been allowed to enter. Rafah is inconsistently open since November 2nd. We know that also, uh, as we mentioned, that northern Gaza and specifically Uh, what we've described as the line above Wadi Gaza has been cut off from the rest of the Gaza Strip. And as Palestinians were returning on foot to check on their homes or to check on their kin who were still there, they have been sniped at by Israeli military, akin to the operations that Israel has used to snipe at Palestinians who crossed by foot in the aftermath of the 1949 armistice agreements, akin to other moments where Palestinian refugees have attempted to return by foot, breaching uh, Lebanese border, the Syrian border, and even uh, the perimeter of Gaza or the West Bank border. that this is consistent with the policy of using force in order to deter returnees, uh, to frame them as a security threat. They are an existential threat. And then to criminalize their presence as infiltrators within Israeli criminal law.
2: As uh, we know, on uh, Friday, November 24th, there was the beginning of a four-day truce, pause, or ceasefire, depending on how you want to refer to it. The broad outlines of this four-day truce is that a total of 50 Israeli hostages, women and children specifically, would be exchanged for a total of 150 Palestinian uh, prisoners. Um, The agreement also includes a six-hour daily halt to Israeli air traffic over northern Gaza, including drones, and a total halt to Israeli air traffic over southern Gaza. Some analysts have noted that this is the first time in several decades, if ever, that there has been an effective uh, achievement of what we could call a no-fly zone for Israeli military and air force uh, capacities over the Gaza Strip. Um, In addition to the exchange of hostages uh, for Palestinian political prisoners, 208 trucks and four fuel trucks are to enter Gaza each day, Um, and there would be an additional ceasefire day after the four days for each additional 10 hostages released. I think it's important to point out a couple of uh, caveats to this situation. The first is that the Israeli government, uh, most notably uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, as well as several other officials, have made clear that they have every intention of continuing on with their war on the Palestinians of the Gaza Strip once the release of hostages stops um, and once this t- temporary pause or truce comes to an end. I think it's also important to note that over 70% of the population of the Gaza Strip was dependent on international aid for its daily basic needs prior to October 7th. The number of aid trucks entering Gaza prior to October 7th averaged about 500 uh, aid trucks a day. So this agreement negotiates only 200 a day, which marks a significant increase since October 7th, but nowhere approaching the pre-October requirements of of that deal. Um, At the start of the deal, there were 235 people who were held captive in Gaza, including Israelis and foreign nationals, about 40 of them reportedly children. This does not include the four civilian hostages that were unconditionally released by Hamas, the one Israeli soldier allegedly rescued by the Israeli military and three bodies of hostages reportedly retrieved by the Israeli military in northern Gaza. On day one of this agreement, 13 Israelis were exchanged for 39 Palestinians. Hamas also apparently unilaterally released 11 foreign nationals, 10 Thai adults, and one Filipino adult. On day two, 13 Israelis were exchanged for another 39 Palestinians. And once again, Hamas apparently unilaterally released an additional five foreign nationals. And in this case, they were five Thai adults. Uh, We should note that the exchange on the second day was strained by several accusations made by Hamas and other Palestinian groups that Israel had violated the terms of the agreement um, by either not permitting appropriate aid into the Gaza Strip or not permitting aid to reach northern Gaza for reasons that Noura just described, most probably, Um, and also that Israel was not abiding the agreement to release Palestinian women and children on the basis of seniority, meaning who had been held the longest in Israeli custody. I would like to also point out, as many listeners have probably gathered, that the issue of Palestinians is one of major significance to Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem and elsewhere. Um, Prior to the deal being made, there was an estimated over 7,000 Palestinian political prisoners held by Israel. Uh, uh, Over 1,000 of them had been captured uh, by Israel since October 7th. Um, Over 2000 of these political prisoners are held in what is called administrative detention, which means that they have not been given charges, they have not been tried, they have not been shown any evidence against them that they can be held for up to six months, but indefinitely renewable Um, and and, uh, that accounts for 2000 of the political prisoners uh, that are in Israeli custody. we should note that there are over about 60 women and uh, over 200 uh, uh, children or uh, 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 minors of, uh, below the age of 18 held in Israeli custody. And this does not even account for what Noura and many others have described and discussed as post mortem detention. Uh, at least 370 Palestinians who have died uh, uh, are having their bodies either frozen in morgues or closed locations by the Israeli military.
0: Since October 7th, the United States has provided by its own admission, a steady near daily flow of munitions, bombs, air defense capacity, and other key equipment to support Israeli assault on the Gaza Strip. In addition to funding and arming the Israeli assault on Gaza, U.S. policy has also been to oppose and counter growing calls for an unconditional ceasefire, Reports demonstrate that the Biden administration was concerned that during the four day pause, that pictures and images would emerge of the carnage in northern Gaza, thus increasing demands for a ceasefire within U.S. ranks and amongst the U.S. population. Now 80 percent of Democrats support a ceasefire. Only 42 Democrats across the Senate and the House have echoed those calls. by, the Biden administration also submitted a fourteen point three billion dollar military aid package to Israel as part of broader legislation. It was recently revealed that the legislation includes the removal of restriction on all categories of weapons and ammunition to israel uh, that is it is allowed to access from u s weapons stockpiles stored in Israel itself. This is further diminishing the already diminished regulation on the provision of u s weapons to foreign countries. This includes within the US's own memorandum of understanding with Israel, as well as the Leahy Amendment and the Arms Export Control Act. This is an abrogation, not only of international law, but of US law. And now we're seeing in this instance, an explicit uh, removal of all regulation and red lines and should be of concern to everyone. As reported by The Intercept, the uh, Biden is looking to lift virtually all the meaningful restrictions on the stockpile and transfer of its arms with Israel, with plans to remove limitations to obsolete or surplus weapons, waive an annual spending cap on replenishing the stockpile, remove weapons-specific restrictions, and even curtail congressional oversight.
2: One of the key concerns of many observers, but primarily apparently of the Biden administration is uh, uh, the Israeli war on Gaza spilling over to a broader regional war. As of yet, uh, that has not happened, though there are concerns that with the potential collapse or expiration of this four-day truce, that the escalating dynamics around the region will continue. Most notably, uh, we see the growing exchange of of fire and rockets between the Israeli military and Hezbollah across the Israel-Lebanon border. Uh, We have also seen um, that the Houthis uh, in Yemen, in addition to launching rockets uh, uh, from Yemen, uh, uh, to, to either try and pressure or threaten the Israelis vis-a-vis their actions in Gaza, recently seized uh, uh, a cargo ship that they claim is owned by an Israeli businessman. Uh, and as of a couple of days ago, there was a different uh, cargo ship that was struck um in the Indian Ocean um the precise source of that attack is unknown uh observers claim that the risk of regional escalation continues although it is clear for those of us that are following the situation between Israel and uh Hezbollah across the Lebanon Israel border that there is an attempt by Hezbollah to enact a type of discipline to try and prevent the escalation in a way that it does not want to go Um, We shall see if in the aftermath of this four-day truce, what lines may be crossed by Israel and how that might transform what we could consider a third or fourth round of escalation across the Israel-Lebanon border. Noura?
0: There continues to be an unprecedented wave of dissent from within policy circles and amongst the grassroots. Over 100 political appointees across 40 institutions have opposed Biden's policy of supporting israel without conditions or restraint. They have echoed the calls for a ceasefire. At least three official dissent cables have emerged from within the State Department. There have been statements by the staffers of former Sanders, Clinton and and the Obama campaign. Over 100 congressional staffers have uh, uh, risen in opposition, including a walkout that featured nearly a thousand staffers. There have been regular protests across major cities that continued to echo the calls of in the millions, in the billions, we are all Palestinians. We even saw civil disobedience, most recently during the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, a bold move that included not only gluing um, protesters, gluing themselves to the parade route where they had to be removed, but even those atop floats, including uh, an indigenous float where a young man held up a Palestinian flag. This has become one of the most mainstream points of opposition. Palestine has often been a point of contention, but now it is something that nobody can escape. We uh, are hearing uh, constant chatter of, of conversations that are being struck up in in queues to get food, on the train, um, in in parks. And so seeing how this has now become an issue of global concern, a critical role has been played by the Palestinian community in in organizing, especially by the Palestinian youth movement along with many other allies. This also includes Jewish anti-occupation and anti-Zionist groups, as well as many, many more. One of the fiercest struggles has been waged across university campuses, faculty have been organizing themselves in solidarity with students for justice in palestine as faculty for justice in palestine we saw a group of Columbia alum who turned in their cap and gowns in fierce opposition to the columbia university administration's decision to ban sjp as well as to ban uh jewish voice for peace on their campus rather than applaud these university students for for educating themselves, for mobilizing their generation, for creating this generational change. We see a crackdown from the top down onto the students um, in a continuing wave of repression, one that echoes the repression um, that was waged against anti-war students, especially during uh, the US-led Vietnam War that eventually ended because the US, uh, even though it was militarily superior, failed to win the legitimacy war uh, and and the moral war. This repression now because of a failure from administration officials, as well as from university um, officials and leadership across the board continues to reverberate in anti-Palestinian racism and violence. We just received today reports on November 26th that three Palestinian students from Haverford, Brown University and Trinity College have been stabbed in Burlington, Vermont, in the chest and the back. Two, in unfatal um, condition, but one, in critical condition. They are all being treated. Reportedly, they were wearing kafiyas during the time, but this has not been identified as a hate crime. This continues an ongoing growth of anti-Palestinian racism and violence that includes the tearing off of hijab, of. Protesters, this includes what we saw in the harassment by an Obama, former Obama administration, uh, security council employee who was harassing on a near daily basis, uh, um, a Muslim vendor uh, at a halal cart in New York. This continues violent attacks, including the stabbing 26 times of a young Palestinian, six-year-old Palestinian boy, his fatal stabbing in Illinois, as well as the stabbing of a Muslim woman in uh, Texas. So here we call on all that this is not just about reducing and an, you know the Islamophobic fervor, which the Biden administration tried to do midway through this uh, through these escalating um, attacks where it condemned rising anti-Semitism and rising Islamophobia, but that this these attacks cannot be separated in the U.S.'s um, support for genocide and for unregulated warfare, where in order to condition an American public to support this illegitimate war, it has had to frame Palestinians as violent has had to frame them as presumptively anti-Semitic, has had to frame them as uncivilized, has had to frame them as barbaric. So the rhetoric of wanting to combat Islamophobia in a way that's decoupled from an opposition to this warfare and an opposition to a continuing support for Israeli apartheid is quite vapid and ineffective. We continue to call on all those who are concerned with the life of Palestinian Arab Muslim students and their safety, that those calls cannot be decoupled, but have to be considered holistically as US-based anti-Palestinian racism and Islamophobia is part of a broader imperial uh, policy.
2: So Noura, now that you and I have covered uh, a variety of facets of this particular moment that we're in, which is really effectively day 51 of the Israeli war on the Gaza Strip, even if we are within um, day three uh, of the four day truce that is part of this hostage exchange. I wanted to zoom out a little bit and revisit some of the issues that we've brought up. Just to kind of highlight a few important details to our listeners and and invite you to do so, I really appreciated what you were saying about the inadequacy of the framework of Islamophobia to describe um, what uh, Palestinian and Arab students are facing on college campuses and elsewhere Uh, and I I think it's totally uh, uh, correct that it's an attempt to decouple a supposed claim to civil rights from the need to protect people's actual opposition to the Israeli war on the Gaza Strip. We should also remind our listeners of the numerous Uh, Christian Palestinians who are just as committed uh, to opposing uh, the Israeli war on the Gaza Strip that the framework of Islamophobia does not uh, at all capture, um, and that anything short of anti-Palestinian racism and anti-Arab racism by our institutions, whether they be academic or otherwise, uh, is simply not sufficient uh, to address the the wave of violence and intimidation that we're seeing. Um, But beyond that, I just want to, I think it's important to note to our listeners, the immense military and intelligence failure that October 7th represents for the Israeli establishment um, and which might help us understand why, despite meeting none of its stated military objectives, Israel insists on continuing forward with the full support of the United States on its war on the Gaza Strip. Um, And we are starting to see Israeli reports that there were several uh, intelligence indicators and reports that were gathered prior to October 7th, indicating that uh, something of this type or another was in the works on the part of Hamas. And this was apparently ignored by the Israeli leadership it seems to be as a real function of of their hubris, uh, which only adds to the kind of embarrassing moment the military and intelligence establishment is in. And what we should really understand uh, uh, that this war on the Gaza Strip is really a war of revenge, a war in which the fate of Netanyahu's political future is tied to, uh, uh, but a war in which the majority of the political and military class in Israel has come around um, to support. And even the claim that any of this was necessary for this hostage deal to take place, we know full well that this offer of releasing 50 Israeli civilians, women and children, was on the table by Hamas. Not just before this deal was struck, not just before the Israeli raid on al-Shifa, not just before the Israeli ground invasion into Gaza, but literally several days after October 7th. Um, So I think it's really important to note that separate from the death, destruction and displacement that the Israeli military has visited on the population of Gaza, nothing has been politically or militarily achieved other than war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocidal acts, ethnic cleansing, uh, and and so on and and so forth.
0: There's a lot there to unpack, Ziad, so I'm just going to maybe comment on the first and then pivot to the second, where you discuss really the lack of military advantage that is achieved, but a wage of ethnic cleansing that has been waged in the name of some you know, elusive military goal. So on the first, I just want to emphasize to listeners that as we think about constructions of race in the United States and here we're thinking about the construction of Palestinians, the construction of Muslims, the construction of Arabs, as you highlight They're obviously, you know, also Palestinians are Muslim, Christian, atheists, and then, but oftentimes they get racialized as Muslims as well. But that these constructions, like the construction of, of, of most other minorities are constructed in a way where US law enforcement and military are not separate entities, but in fact, part of a single entity of US state violence. So we can falsely create a binary between them where law enforcement represents a peacetime operation for uh, law and order, whereas the military is, uh, is deployed in order to either achieve a military advantage to defend the United States somehow, or to defend its security interests. And what many scholars have emphasized for us is that there is a, a continuum between US law enforcement and US military one that um, has been uh, identified as you know, police forces. Actually, the restructuring of U.S. police in the early 20th century reflects a restructuring of U.S. military when it became an imperial power um, upon its defeat of the Spanish and the Spanish-American War in the late 19th century. It becomes the occupying and colonial power in the Philippines, Guam, Cuba, Puerto Rico. And here we see the U.S. needing this is the work of Julian Go, sociologist Julian Go, who identifies for us that the U.S. now it now needs to protect its holdings, right? Protect its colonial holdings. Um, begins a a different kind, you know, restructures its military to achieve that, and we see that restructuring take place within U.S. police as well, where now the police, you know, has mounted units engages in in racial uh, profiling, in surveillance operations and in preemptive operations. And many of those that profiling preemption surveillance is targeting minority racialized communities who are very much also the the enemies um, across these colonial geographies as well. So this is just to emphasize that as we think about combating racism in the United States, in this instance, right now, Islamophobia, anti-Palestinian racism, that it has to be considered within this holistic framework of the US, not thinking of it through the lens of American exceptionalism in just its domestic nature, but the US as an imperial power, as a colonial power, has to be considered far more broadly um, uh, and, and how it constructs its racial other. Pivoting to your point about this has been a, a war, a campaign of revenge. This has also reflected right Netanyahu's own, you know, political interests of not being displaced from power. Who is going to bear the responsibility for the October seventh um, operation, right? But the other thing that we should consider is how how now analysts are talking about the day after, right? So for Israel. What its um, political leaders and analysts have have emphasized to us, as Ayala Chekid recently did, the former justice minister recently did when she said, after Israel turns Gaza into a parking lot, that there needs to be a humanitarian push to accept Palestinian refugees um, in a humanitarian, you know, bid, um, of, you know, in Europe, the United States, and elsewhere. That Israel very much. Continues not only on its track. This wasn't just revenge. This was a continuing Nakba. This is very much continuing the expansion of Israeli sovereignty and the elimination of Palestinian natives on the one hand. As far as the U.S. is concerned, the U.S. is primarily concerned with how is it that they buttress the Fatah-dominated Palestinian Authority and its ability to now have you know govern the Gaza Strip along with the West Bank. To rehabilitate this very feeble idea, not of a Palestinian state, right? But a, a Palestinian what they call a Palestinian state, dressed up as you know, as a basically dressed up autonomy framework where the Palestinian Authority is a sub continues to be a compliant subcontractor um, of the Israeli occupation and of apartheid where it governs the Palestinians in order to be able to maintain, right? The fiction of a Jewish demographic majority, when in fact, because Israel is the single sovereign, there is an equal number now, this is within um, the territory between the river and the sea of uh, Palestinians and Jewish Israelis. And so for, for many others who are looking at this, right, we have to think beyond just you know i i it's been so frustrating watching the news because we literally the news literally shifted its attention away uh from israel's ca- ethnic cleansing campaign even dropped the point that there was no command center beneath a shifa hospital right and has um acutely focused on the condition of prisoners who are the prisoners where are the prisoners who are the captives who are the hostages right in a way that begins is 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 um, sacrificing the forest for the trees and losing sight of the fact that those Palestinians who are released back, you know, into Palestinian general population and out of prison are still at great risk of rearrest. Because of Israeli apartheid, because they can be rearrested simply for existing. There is nothing to protect them. And so to emphasize here that whereas Israel is pushing for a continuing ethnic cleansing campaign in nakba the U.S. is pushing, along with European um, allies, for you know, the, the reassertion and the bolstering of Palestinian authority um, governance of Bantustans, Palestinians are saying, you need to end the siege, end the occupation, and dismantle apartheid. And so we're having almost these three different conversations um, that are, 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 I think, are going hopefully going to crystallize further if, in fact, this ceasefire is not merely a pause, but becomes the permanent ceasefire that we have been demanding and think is necessary.
1: Thank you Ziad and Noura. This concludes our November 26, 2023 episode of the War on Palestine podcast, a regular program of approximately 20 minutes, except it's a bit longer today, comprising updates on what is happening on the ground in Palestine as well as some focused analysis on how to make sense of those developments. Today's episode was hosted and produced by myself, Bassam Haddad. It was written and presented by Ziad Bulish and Noura Aliqat. Research for this program was conducted by anas al khatib mais al alami sara al yahya Ranim ayyad alaa atiya and Ariyan nushi find out more on palestinincontext.org and please do join us this tuesday at 10:30 am for another teach in with yusuf Munayir on colonial narratives as well as another teach in yet at 3:15 pm est both are in eastern standard on eastern standard time but the second one is at 3 15 p.m. with uh, Daryl Lee, Noor Khat, and Richard Falk on the topic International Law, the War, and Palestine. And we hope to see you here very soon. Stay safe. Assalamu alaikum. <music>